and welcome. You're listening to Diversity Matters, a podcast about raising awareness and education through thought-provoking discussion, opinions, experiences, and inspirational stories from the complex world of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Now, please welcome your host, Mike Seeley. Hello and welcome to Diversity Matters podcast show, where we embrace all people from different backgrounds, perspectives and experiences. I'm your host, Mike Seeley, and I'm excited to explore the many different topics that address the importance and benefits of diversity inclusion in our society and the workplace. My guest this week is Keisha Adair-Swaby, a remarkable woman who is an international inspirational speaker She is the founder of Empowering Dyslexics, which is a company which helps others to unleash their true potential, uh, to find their greatness, to live a life of purpose through inspiration. She is also the author of a fantastic book entitled Empowering Dyslexics, Blessed and Gifted, and a radio presenter, as well as finding time to be a wife and mother to four children. This is a very modest introduction because Keisha has achieved so much more which we will discuss. Keisha, welcome to Diversity Matters, and thank you for taking the time to be here. Uh, thank you so much, Mike. It's an honour to be joining here today. Really excited about our interview. Excellent. So I did read your book. It was great. I read it in two days. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't put it down. Um, <laughs> now, what I'd love to do is just to start by you sharing a little bit more about yourself, particularly your time in Jamaica and, and growing up in Jamaica to the time when you you came to the UK? Yeah. So um, I grew up in Jamaica in a little parish called St Elizabeth, uh, for those of, those that know of Jamaica. And I started school, but I really loved school, but I was really struggling with a lot of things. You know, I remember being in the classroom and having to copy from my peers Because our teachers in Jamaica at that time was very different from what we know now and what we know in the UK as well. So if we didn't know our um, times table, we'd get um, beat in our hands for not knowing it. We'd have to be immaculate in school as well. But the struggles that I was having was I I really didn't understand quite a lot of the things that was being taught in school. And, you know, I developed kind of a, a, a fear towards certain things, especially numbers and maths because if you've been beat to to learn something you're really gonna you know you're gonna move away from it in a way where Mm. you're gonna have a develop that fear where you don't want to interact with it you don't understand it so you just want to keep away from it so I was going through school struggling all the time whilst I really enjoyed going it was every day was for me was a is a personal challenge and it was a hidden challenge as well because I didn't know what I was going through yeah. And when I left um, Jamaica at the age of 14 to come to the UK and started the education system in the UK, that was another journey. So we'll explore a little <laughs> bit more about that. But that's that was my, that's yeah. how it started, really. Excellent. And I can't, I can't even imagine how much kind of pressure you went through. I know that in, in reading your book, um, you had a teacher that wasn't very supportive and you even had... Yeah you know, members of your family that were telling you that you were stupid and, and all kinds of things. Yeah. So, I mean, how did you cope with that? I, I cope by just um, going through each day because what else can you do? It's it, it, You develop a situation where 
we tend to mask things. People who are neurodiverse, we go through a life in a lot of sense where we don't, the, the, the true us can be hidden underneath all the challenges and all the, the hidden things that we're going through, which we don't talk about it because who do we talk to about it? Mm-hmm. I couldn't talk to my parents about what I was going through because they really didn't understand themselves. And until being diagnosed after age 40, 41, I haven't sat down and really spoke to my mum or my dad about it in any depth because they themselves, I could see it now that I've been diagnosed, I could see it in themselves where their schooling that they had and I, you know, the things like writing a simple letter and all of those things, they were struggling themselves. So that's a big part of it where there's a lot of undiagnosed yeah. people out there who don't know anything and have no awareness. So yeah, I just yeah. had to just carry on regardless. <laughs> Oh, wow. And, you know, so you eventually come to the UK at age 14. So still at a time when you you need to be in school, completely different environment. What was that like for you? That was absolutely horrendous for me at the first start of it, because I spent two years in the schooling system. As you know, at age 16, you take your GCSEs. And I remember just being in the exam, going to start school was hard because I come from Jamaica, the sunshine, as you know, everything is so different. The food, <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the the people, you know, when I started school, it was a shock to my system because it, it I started school September and it was absolutely freezing. And I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, this is, this is, this is hard. And, and then when I started school, they realized that I was a new girl who come just from Jamaica and they, they, I got bullied because of the way I sounded, the way I spoke. So there's times where I didn't say anything in class because I was embarrassed and, yeah. and you know, ashamed that I am going to be the one that's going to be picked on. So I kind of was muted for a while and things like PE, I just didn't want to do it. Certain things, I just didn't want to partake because of what was yeah. going through. But, so it was very different. And we'll come on to since you were diagnosed, but even prior to that, so again, the challenges you had were with numbers, with letters... Yeah but also with coordination, right? You, you speak yes. about not being able to catch yeah. a ball and not yeah. knowing your, your left from your, yeah, your right, right hand. Um, so, yeah, so that must have really kind of put you in a shell, I'd imagine, in terms yeah. of not really wanting to kind of socialise and engage and, and things like that, right? Definitely. So did you make many friends? I had um, not, not as much as I could have had. I had, um, there was just a few... Because the school that I went to in the Midlands was predominantly um, white and Asian students. There was probably around mm-hmm. six of us that were black and it was not a family that I knew, but they were in a different year group to myself. So I kind of gelled with possibly about one or two um, of the my Asian peers in my class, at the time, in my form at the time. And that was it, really. So after you left school, you found yourself a job. Yeah. And how did you manage... Yeah, how did so, you manage working with everything else, yeah. all these challenges you have? So after I left school, I came to Manchester to live and I started because I was determined after leaving school, not having any GCSEs, I was determined to achieve my English language GCSE. So I enrolled myself um, into Loretta College, which is a college here in Manchester. And I had other challenges that was going on in regards to my immigration status and all of those things. It's all in the book. However, um, I managed to get, after finishing, I managed to get my first job in with the GMB union and I spent five years with them. But in that job, 
I was really struggling as well because I had to, I remember I had to, um, it was a booking system because it was a conference kind of college and we had a booking system and we also had like a stock system because everything was provided on site. For example, accommodation, catering, all the food ordering, everything went on there. And I remember covering for my colleague Jade and I totally messed up the whole booking system. I booked people in the wrong accommodation night and people that were booked in. And I kept noticing the pattern keep happening over and over again. They noticed it as well because they seen that certain task that they gave me. I was really struggling and mm-hmm. I, it was quite kind of embarrassing on my path because I'm thinking, I just don't know. I'm trying my best here. I'm trying. I'm giving it 110 percent, but I'm still making these errors and I don't know what's going on. So, yeah, it was hard. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, I'll just kind of go on a few more pages down the line in, in the book. I mean, you went on to university, right? Yes. I mean, um, what a challenge. <laughs> yeah, because when I came to the UK, um, my grandma, she used to, bless her soul, she used to take me around to see relatives, you know, and they always had these pictures on the wall of the hat and gown and I always uh-huh. had that dream that one day I want to be wearing that. So after I left um, the GMB union, got redundancy after five years, I went into the local government for 12 years, spent 12 years in there. And then, I, again, the challenges were there. I was going through a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. I was going through anxiety, depression. All of those things was happening because I had this hidden thing that was going on. They noticed they put me in special measures because of the errors and everything that I was making so there came a point in 2016 where I had to just sit down and talk to my husband and said, I remember driving to work one day and I, I rang him and I said, I can't go into work. And we talked and it wasn't an easy decision because I, we have a family. We have, at the time I had four children, but I was really, really suffering in silence. Mm. And I made a decision to leave my job and go and start studying. So I remember... Um, applying for a foundation degree because I had to start from the bottom considering yeah. I only had a few um, vocational qualifications plus my English. So I went there, went and sat at my desk and you know when you're doing something at work where you're not sure what supposed to be doing and I'm hiding the screen I'm trying to apply to UCAS for my for my foundation degree and when I got it and the next day I got um unconditional offer, I knew I was on the right track. And I started from the bottom, worked my way up after I did pass the foundation and then went to do the top up degree that gave me a first class honours. Yeah, that's when everything changed. It was that that was the degree. That is amazing. I think it's amazing in a couple of ways. One that obviously you had that dream, you saw the cap and gown in the photos and, and you wanted to to live that. But then to, you know, to give up work and to go into full time study as a mature student is something that not many people would do. Yeah, so you had the courage to be able to go ahead and do that. Now, I know whilst you were at university was when you really discovered your learning differences. Just talk a little bit about how that came about. You know, in they say in life everything happens for a reason because if mm-hmm. I hadn't wasn't brave enough to give up my role in local government and go pursue my dream of studying for my degree, I still would be undiagnosed until today and stuck in that job for the rest of my life, earning my pension. Mm. And I'll never forget, um, I was doing my, coming up to my, doing my dissertation, I was working on this assignment and I, I struck up a relationship, a friendship with um, uh, Leslie in the library. And we used to have a you know good chat and laugh about everything. 
And she always said to me, you know, if you ever need a hand with your work, let me know and I'll check it for you and whatever. And I'm so glad that I did. One, the laptop on the, the spell check on my laptop wasn't working. So that threw everything out of sync. So she was able to see everything. And it was, this is the moment that absolutely changed my life in every way possible. And I owe so much to Leslie because when I went back to her after she checked my work, she said to me, Keisha, I didn't know that you were dyslexic. And when I heard that, I was like, what did you just say? And she was like, yeah, because I have a brother who's also dyslexic. And I see the way you write things, the way you spell things and the way you formalize everything. You know, I can just see the traits. So I started now when I heard those, because I've heard the word dyslexia before, because I've got friends who were dyslexic. Yeah. But to hear it been associated with myself at that time, I was like, wow. It was like the moment the the, the, sh- the light was shining through the roof at that at that time because <laughs> I was like, this this is it. This is this is what it is, finally. And I because I was about to leave university, I had to start things moving yeah. to get diagnosis. Yeah. But but was that a sense of relief that you found out, or was it a was it a bit of a shock? It was mixed emotions in the many ways. It was mixed emotions because this chance that, that I had um, achieved a first class honours degree. However, I had no support because I didn't know. And mm-hmm. the university that was at is absolutely amazing in giving support to, to, to um, people with learning differences. So it was mixed really, but it was most of all for me, it was relief. Basically, it was yeah. relief, massive relief. Because found, finally, I was able to, I found myself and I understood myself more about why I do things the way I do, why I'm so amazing at things, <laughs> and why I have challenges on certain things. So, and from that moment, I owned it. I, I absolutely owned who I am and what I am, and that I'm dyslexic, and that's I have, and, and I also have um, severe dyspraxia as well. So, it, it, it absolutely life changing for me, really is. Yeah. That's great. And, you know, you've you've gone on, I've mentioned the book, you've, you've gone on to, to write this great book. Tell me, what was the inspiration for writing the book in the first place? Wow, that's a big one. And going back to the degree, after doing a degree, everybody was saying, are you going to do the master's? And I went straight on and did the master's. So I was <laughs> writing the book, um, following, because after I got diagnosed, I started my master's straight after that in September. And... I thought, you know what I was noticing, especially in my black community, is the lack of understanding and the lack of mm-hmm. awareness, yeah. the shame, the stigma. And people really have this hung up about being, I, I don't know what it is, why, you know, people think that if you have dyslexia or anything like that, there's something wrong with you and there's nothing. So the inspiration for the book was I had to leave a legacy for my children as well, because they're also neurodiverse. My daughter, who's 21, 22 this week, she um, has oh, got dyspraxia as well diagnosed. My other twin daughter, she's also got that dyspraxia di- diagnosed. My other twin has got, um, in the process of getting um, suspected ADHD as well. So it's a massive thing for me. It's very personal, this journey of writing a book, because yeah. I've put it out there and I've been absolutely overwhelmed with the response from the book. Because finally, people understood a bit more now, especially mm-hmm. in the black community and everyone is read it, understood a bit more about what dyslexia is, 
some people never even knew what dyspraxia was until yeah. I, I started to talk about it and share it. So for me, it was very important for me to put everything kind of together in a book. And it wasn't easy. I'm telling you that now. There's, you know, I have an amazing publisher who I'm meeting with after, straight after you. And she's helped me to put the book together and, and get things in there. And I put disclaimer out there and say, you know, if, if you spot any errors or anything in there, just be, be, be gentle with me because it was a massive <laughs> process to write a book as a dyslexic person. Yeah. It really is. Of course. <laughs> Oh yeah, of course. And you know the interesting thing, um, and there's a right reason I read it in just two days is because as I was reading the book, it was almost like I was living through your experiences. Aww. I could no, I could just imagine what it was like being told that you were stupid, you're an idiot, yeah. all of those types of things. Because yeah. um, I was like, there were moments when I was saying, "Oh wow." But the other interesting thing about the the book, when you mentioned the fact that at first you didn't really like to read and you had trouble with numbers, it made me think of of my son because he struggled through school. Yeah. And at one point he was told that, you know, he's fine. The only problem with him at school is he gets distracted easily and then that leads into to other issues. Yeah. And he struggled with his GCSEs. Now, I didn't think too much of it at the time I spent a lot of time with him going through and helping him to actually scrape through his GCSEs now the only reason I didn't think too much of it of it was we got him into college and he wanted to do a sports diploma and he came out of that after two years with three distinctions so I just thought it was just about the way he learns and the way he absorbs information um he's now in his just coming up to the end of his second year in university. But I can still see a few challenges that yeah. he has. And I was just talking to my wife just recently, and I was saying, like, I've, I've read the book, and it made me think of Geo. And I'm wondering whether I should speak to his tutor as he goes into his final year and maybe get him yeah. tested and just to make sure that he gets all of the support that he needs totally totally because yeah. um whilst in him is in that setting of the environment of studying they have um provisions in there to give them support the diagnosis he when my daughter it was so good uh, manchester metropolitan university i got to take my hat off to them all the time is my daughter started she was just was coming out of college and the college couldn't do anything because she was leaving but straight as she's before she started a degree at the university, they had her tested and, and she got the diagnosis. And wow. the support that she got was absolutely amazing. She had a support worker, just like myself. Funny enough, we both had the same support worker while oh, I was wow. doing my master's, <laughs> was doing her degree. Yeah, it was quite, yeah. And then, so she got um, the laptop, she's got the, I got the printer, you got assistive technology as well, because what you've noticed as well, I can connect you with certain people who are in the um, neurodiversity field of assistive technology. That is a massive game changer for us because, mm. for example, you'll hear you, you'll see in my book where I said I talk about um, being able to have Sanusent, which is a package assistive technology where I had the my laptop in the classroom and I was able to record the lectures slide by slide and then I can go back to that. Because one of the worst things you can ask someone who is having a bit of a challenge is to copy from a board in a lecture mm. because you're not going to get everything down. So I would yeah. absolutely recommend and, and advise you 
to speak to the support yeah. services within a university. Every every most every university I know anyway has a support services department, and they will be able yeah. to help as much as they can. And also DSA, which is a disability student allowance that helps him to get access to all of these support that he needs. So I can talk to you all about that afterwards, yeah. Matt, because this could be a long conversation. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's great, and I will do that. But as I was saying, I didn't even think about doing that until I read your your book. Yeah. You know, So you're already educating. You've helped me to yeah. learn so much more um, about this. And I know that you know, in the company that I, I work, at, work at, we are doing so much around diversity and inclusion. But one of the areas that I'm really bringing forward now is around our education and awareness around neurodiversity. And what I'm seeing just in how much I've learned and people I've met is just how creative and talented they are, Yeah, you know? And it leads me to thinking that actually, are we doing a good enough job of attracting talent into our business with people who have a neuro a neurodivergent I don't think we are um, which means that we're missing out on very creative talent who could help us solve problems quicker who could yeah. deliver greater results and, and things like that definitely you know. I mean reach out look up um, EY as an, as an organization EY I mentioned it in the book as well who has Center mm-hmm. of Excellence for neurodiversity and they have been at the forefront of championing the importance yeah. of having the neurodiverse mind within that space because as you say organizations are really missing out on all of that creativity yeah. and the big thinking and the vision big vision thinking is so much so much around that yeah now you are doing a lot of great work i think you're doing a lot of speaking you're doing a lot of educating um, and one thing that you, you mentioned earlier on was, you know, the the stigma that exists within the black community in particular. What, why do you think that is? Why do you think that stigma is, is there? The stigma is there because, um, you know, histor- historically, uh, in, our, in our culture and in our, um, especially in my culture, and in this sort of like the, the African culture, there's a lot of um, pressure and expectations that's been put on our mm. children from a very, very young age, where I, I always love the um, thing that Gina Yashere talks about when she said that um, she, she does it in her sketches. And she said that her mom, uh, when she was pregnant, when her mom was pregnant with her and they ask her what she's having, she never said a girl or a boy, she said a doctor or a lawyer or this <laughs> or that. You know, it's that expectation that's been placed yeah. on our children. So it's a massive denial because a lot of parents don't, because they don't know much about the greatness of having been neurodiverse, they think that it's yeah. a bad thing. So when they think it's a bad thing, they're going to want to deny it and, sh- and, and shy away from it. So it's yeah. going to be a case of, well, I don't, I, you can't tell me that my child, you don't, you can't label my child and tell my child that, tell me that my child has got dyslexia or a learning difference. As, a, as I always say, I don't call it a learning difficulty because that's a word that's very negative and we don't mm. want that negativity that, that exists around it to continue. So it's the expectations and 
it, that shame is coming from, you know, it's like in certain villages, you have known that you've got a doctor in your family, you've got a lawyer in your family, you've got a teacher, you've got all the high yeah. profile. So to know that you've got a child who learned differently, but no one understands what it is about that child, you're going to deny it. You're really going to, you're not yeah. going to face it. Yeah. And it's understanding really. And that's hence awareness is so key and championing the greatness of being, of being neurodiverse. Because if you don't champion the greatness, it's gonna it needs to outdo all the negative beliefs that and myths that people have around these learning differences. Do you think that's beginning to change now that there is certainly yes. a lot more awareness? Definitely. Yeah. Um, I'm in another book called um, Black Brilliant and Dyslexic, and that's 25 of us black people, and we're spread to all the way to uh, America um, in the book. And that is sharing our story as black people saying, this is wh- this is who I am and this is the great things that I have, that I've done. And it's just amazing book because it's showcasing all the positives rather than the negatives of yeah. being, because it's no point focusing on the challenges that you're facing, focus on the strengths and the positives of it. And then yeah. everything will be better. Yeah. Well, you're, I mean, you're in really good company. I mean, you mentioned lots of, Famous people who, you know, are neurodivergent, people like Richard yeah. Branson, uh, for example. Um, and, you know, a lot of people who have started businesses from scratch and grown them into huge empires have got some level of neurodivergence. Um, because we can't fit in the box. We can't fit in the box. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and, you know, and I think that's a really good point you make because, I think for those folks who couldn't really maybe get a, a full-time job in a company, couldn't go through an interview process for, yeah. well, what else can I do? Let me start my own business. Let me start my own, my, my own thing here. And, and, have, and have grown, you know, and it, I think when you look at famous kind of scientists and engineers and, and people like that, you know, some of them are neurodivergent. I met um, a guy in the U.S., a couple of months ago at an event of ours. Um, very interesting guy. He was, um, he had ADHD, he had autism, but yet he was an engineer in the company that he worked for. And I had a really good chat with him where he was explaining that one, he had never ever been through a formal interview. All the jobs that he had got was through having to network with people. But as an engineer, one of the most fascinating stories he told me was when he looked at these complex electrical schematics and and drawings, he was explaining that as he reads them, they actually form a 3D picture in his mind. And so he can see the drawing in 3D and he can begin to see where there are issues, what's going to go wrong, what, you know, what's set right. And then, then he would pass that information on to the rest of his colleagues and engineers who would always be shocked as to how on earth did you determine that you know and it just makes you realize that we need to do so much more to elevate people who are neurodivergent and I think part of the challenge and and correct me if I'm wrong here but part of the challenge is there are not enough people self-declaring their learning differences right so it means that if we don't know, it's very difficult to be able to support them. 
Yeah. And that and and hence it came it comes back to awareness and understanding because once you understand how great it is, you're gonna you want to shout about it rather than just keeping it to yourself. And going back to what you're saying about the the, the gentleman that you met there, another thing is with people who are neurodiverse, we are absolutely solution driven. If there's an issue mm-hmm. or there's a problem, we're gonna see that solution. We're gonna find something that's going to make make that situation better we that, yeah. that that's how we think and because we, we don't just think here we think way beyond and big as well so i can see i, I totally know the link what you're talking about in regards yeah. to seeing the the, the picture in 3d because that's how we see things in, in, in yeah. a massive way yeah now in schools i'm going to come to schools at the moment in education um, I think some of the biggest challenges there is that, you know, um, a mainstream school is fixed in a structure. Any child who may be misbehaving, who may not be able to pay attention, is often deemed as, you know, someone who is a bit of a troublemaker and they often get Problem into trouble. Yeah. What what kind of advice would you give to particularly the education authorities and and teachers around even trying to take us a little step back and and try and assess you know and I know they're not experts but try and assess why is a child doing this and could there possibly be some learning difference you. that they have yeah, yeah. Going on. so that goes down again but we always have to go down to understanding and awareness because a massive percentage of the teachers within our school classrooms don't know much as much as they should know about learning differences and when they change that and it has to be something in the system now that's going to be embedded that all teachers are trained it's simple as that Mm -hmm. they all need to be trained so they can spot what it is because as in the in the prison system right now i'm going to have to touch on that to 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 back up this because in Mm -hmm. the prison system over 50% of, of the inmates have a learning difference. Right. Why is that that they weren't diagnosed? It's a case of they, they, they missed, slipped through the net in primary school, slipped through the net in secondary school, mm-hmm. left the whole schooling system frustrated, doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, and then end up in the prison system. Yeah. Now, that, yeah. that's coming back because diagnosis, a lot of school will say, I had the same um, experience with my own uh, children, School will say, oh, well, we can't diagnose them until they're in year four or they're in year three, age eight and all of that. No, the earliest, I'm not saying that you're going to spot these things in every child or, or, or it may be a learning difference. Maybe it may be just slow development issues. However, mm-hmm. when you can get to the grips of how that child learn and understand their, their learning styles, that's a big thing because not every child is going to be able to do the theory and the academic side of things some ch- children are just creative they just want a, a piece yeah. of paper some paint and they will just create something yeah. and i see we, we, i have twins and they're so different in their own way where the girl is she'll make you something out of nothing because she's got that creative side but yeah. she's not necessarily the biggest reader or the or the biggest speller so teachers have to be able to identify to say oh this is what's going on here. And don't stop writing off children who may be, you know, because trying to put a child in a, in a seat, sitting there for hours, it's difficult. Yeah. 
Yeah. They're going to want to move about. They want to explore because that's what children are. So it's having that understanding to say, you know what, that child is not. A, and if there's something going on, it's something deeper that's happening. Right. Maybe frustration coming from a difficulty that they're masking a learning difference. Because as a child, they don't want to, some children don't want to be seen as being different or being treated different yeah. by getting the support. But it's so important for them to get it from a young age. To do it. Yeah. And and kind of transcending that into the workplace, you know, what, what should companies be doing? Right. What this? companies need to be doing is create an environment that's very accepting so that if mm-hmm. someone is in there and they're struggling, they don't feel embarrassed or ashamed to come and talk to the HR manager or the yeah. team leader or the manager to say, you know what, I'm struggling with this. Also, they from my own experience, Pay attention to your to your employees. Learn more about them. Understand how mm-hmm. they learn things. Not everyone wants to be sat in a meeting for two hours and be writing and taking notes. Find other ways of doing things. You know, sending out information in a, in a readable format, easily understood, bullet points, bam, bam, bam. Do not be given yeah. a, a document, a one million page document <laughs> for people to be reading. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Because yeah. if Keep you're it simple, diverse, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it's simple. You know, one page, main points, don't make the meeting so long. Sometimes people and they, they, we get brain tired very easy because our brain is going a yeah. hundred miles an hour. So our brain's gonna get tired. So sitting there and trying to take minutes in the in the, in the, in the, in the in the meeting environment, trying to understand it make it simple as possible and i go down to, yeah. to the recruitment process as well that is a big part that employees are really 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 messing up messing up on because yeah not everyone learn the same way the application form you know that so many people who are neurodiverse avoid applying for amazing jobs mm-hmm. that they would be so good at because yeah. of the application process there's an interview and then there's a test and then there's there's another interview after following that. And then another interview with four people sat yeah. around the desk, frightening the hell out of you. You're going through anxiety, <laughs> you're sweating, everything is going on. And just make yeah. it simple. You know, it's just now that's that's oh. a real interesting point. Um and just on that point, tell me what would a what would a good interview look like for somebody who's neurodivergent? How can a how can a company adapt the process? To, okay. to support people who yeah what what tips can you give us here I'd, I'd really say i'd really say make it very personal i would get rid of application forms you know i really mm. would get rid of application forms and use because the things with people who are neurodiverse we can communicate and we will communicate through videos talking yeah. you know ask me about something but to write it and put it in 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 the document that the application form i'm going to mess it up it's simple as that yeah. so make it really really simple bring somebody in basic information you want from them so so that you know that they're qualified they're kind of in that route of being qualified talk to people talk to them rather than asking them to, co- to yeah. complete a 20 page application form it's just not going to work yeah. you know i tell and you find what out I... <laughs> yeah, I I absolutely love the idea of a video application. Yeah, that would definitely. be amazing, right? We have all this wonderful technology yeah. at our fingertips. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, wow! Yeah, well, I'll have to, to think about that one. Definitely, and if you want them to do certain things, 
send it to them and give them the opportunity to talk about it, what what it is that is required of them because following yeah. instructions for us can be quite tricky at times as well mm. so you know explain to them what is required of them let them know yeah. beforehand as well and give them enough time that's a massive thing as well timing because if you have a yeah. test attached to an interview and you said oh you've got an hour allocated it's like doing an exam you've got an hour mm-hmm. allocated for this we're going to sit there spending half an hour trying to read it to get ahead around it which is going to take us a little bit longer mm-hmm. half an hour is gone we only have yeah. half an hour left to do the rest of the application. It's not going to happen. Yeah, no, I hear you on that one. And actually, you know, I think that not every job requires no. testing the applicant, no. you know. No, no. So, so sometimes I think we, we need to kind of do things on, on face value, give people the opportunity if we think that everything is right. We overcomplicate things. That's what yeah. we do. We yeah. Overcomplicate things. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, what great. That's great tips and, and great advice. Now, tell me this, um, where do you get the time to now be a radio presenter? Well, I do my radio presenting <laughs> on a weekend, which is on a Sunday. And um, yeah. that's my, because I love, absolutely love interviewing people. So I will in, draw people out, people contact me and say, because what I've always wanted to, to, want to create is the accessibility to being interviewed on the radio because a lot of I was in that situation at once when I was younger and thinking, oh, how yeah. do I get on the radio? You know that is so unreachable. But I, I I let people see that it's not. And then I always my interview style is very relaxed, so I always ensure that they are fully aware that it's not going to be such a hard questioning. It's just a chat, really. Yeah. And because a lot of people get very anxious about the whole process of yeah, it. Yeah. So I love doing the radio, and it's part of my communication side of things that i have that would just sort of excellent amazing. and what, what's your what's do you have is, do you just talk about any topic or are you specific on you know I is it about neurodiversity or just general yeah yeah um a bit of neurodiversity always have to keep that at the forefront i interview a lot of authors as well so they're sharing their story mm-hmm. in their book so i'll have an interview to give them some exposure about the book that they've released and excellent. also um artists um singers Anyone who's doing great things in our community, I bring them yeah. out so that other people can know more Fantastic. about them. Oh, yeah. that's excellent. Keisha, this has been you know, a, a great discussion. We're, we're coming practically to the end of the show. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you have any any kind of last comments or anything else you'd like to, to share? Um, what I'd like to say is, yeah, go out there and buy my book. <laughs> and yeah, learn more absolutely. about my story. <laughs> um, you can find me on social media as well. I am on LinkedIn, very active on LinkedIn. That's my place. Absolutely. I love LinkedIn. That's where I get to meet amazing people yeah. like yourself, Mike. And um, all I can say is if you are out there and you're listening to this and you may think that there's something going on with yourself, Speak to someone, reach out to someone who has gone through the same situation. I'm here all the time. Reach out to me by all means. People do reach out to me and we have a chat. And sometimes talking makes things a lot different, you know, make it easier. So just talk and just be proud of who you are and own whatever it is that you're going through. That's all I've got to say, really. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) Well, Keisha, thank you again so much for joining um on diversity matters and i wish you every success i think what you're doing um to drive awareness and and education is absolutely fantastic we need a lot more uh of it we need to really kind of make sure that we can shine 
a light on these talented people that typically don't get a great opportunity to show what they can do. Yeah. So, Thank you so yeah. much for having me, Mike. No, it's a fun. pleasure. And I hope I'll yeah. speak to you again soon. Take care. Take care. Bye for now. Bye-bye. for listening to this episode of diversity matters if you liked what you heard then be sure to hit like and subscribe and we'll see you next time